Welcome to NTD News Today. I'm Kevin Hogan. Let's take a look at our top stories. Politicians making their final push ahead of the midterms while President Biden plays defense trying to help Democrats hold on to their seats. A busy Thursday night in New York, Democrat VIPs came to Manhattan to shore up support for Governor Hochul. Meanwhile, Representative Zeldin and Stefanik and others addressed thousands of supporters near Albany. Over $10,000 donated to Democratic candidates facing competitive midterm races. They all come from a top lobbyist for Chinese telecom giant Huawei. What are the issues occupying voters' minds the most? We'll hear from people all across the U.S. on how they feel about the midterms and current events. Politicians are making their final push ahead of next week's midterm election showdown. NTD's Jessica Beatty has some of the highlights. In Georgia, the critical Senate race is a toss-up, even though incumbent Democrat Raphael Warnock has outspent his Republican challenger, Herschel Walker. Warnock has raised over $120 million through October 19th. Walker raised about $38 million. Despite raising a lot more, Warnock's numbers are still under 50%. Some late polls have even shown a narrow lead for Walker, who's running for the first time. But most political analysts say the race is a toss-up. President Joe Biden kicked off his three-day campaign swing Thursday, visiting New Mexico and California. Everybody talks about a referendum. It's not a referendum. It's a choice. A choice between two fundamentally different versions of America. Historically, the president's party loses seats in the midterms. Biden's now playing defense, trying to hang on to seats his party already holds. He's supporting Democrats in competitive races in areas he easily won in 2020. He'll head to Chicago Friday evening, then he'll visit Pennsylvania Saturday to campaign with former President Barack Obama. In Texas, Republican Governor Greg Abbott focused on immigration Thursday. He touted his strategy of sending illegal border crossers to Democrat strongholds and dropping them off at the home of Vice President Kamala Harris. Kamala Harris started talking about how, listen, the, the border is really secure. Showing she knew nothing about what was going on. And so I felt an obligation to be involved in the education process. Abbott also mentioned how he hopes Republicans will take back the House of Representatives in the midterms. Over in Florida, Republican Governor Ron DeSantis mentioned President Biden's campaign visit to the state. DeSantis joked that Biden was helping his own campaign rather than his Democrat rivals, Charlie Crist. I said, do I have to declare that as an in-kind contribution to my campaign? Are you telling me he's coming down here and reminding Floridians that the Democrats in this state vote with him 100% of the time? Okay, go ahead and do that. In fact, I've made the offer. Spend the rest of the campaign in Florida. Biden Tuesday cast DeSantis as Donald Trump incarnate. It's his sharpest comment yet against Florida's governor. Jessica Beatty, NTD News. Now over to New York. Incumbent Governor Kathy Hochul held a campaign rally yesterday. Speakers included Vice President Kamala Harris and former U.S. Secretary of State Hillary Clinton. They focused on topics like voting, abortion, and gun control. And today's Jeremy Sandberg has more on Thursday's rally. Five days. We're going to get this done? Yeah. Democrat leaders came out to support Hochul in an effort to stem a possible red wave in New York. Speakers included Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer and New York Attorney General Letitia James, among others. Former Secretary of State and two-time presidential candidate Hillary Clinton framed the upcoming midterms as more than just a choice between two candidates. It is a choice between two very different ideas about who we are as a state and a country, how we should work together or not, what kind of future we want for ourselves, our children, and our grandchildren. Hochul urged people to not be complacent and to get out and vote. And people feel like, I don't need to vote because somebody else will do it, it doesn't matter. That's what happens when complacency sets in. The former lieutenant governor took office last year after former governor Andrew Cuomo resigned to avoid a likely impeachment trial. I have steel running through my veins because of who I am and where I come from. I come from Buffalo, New York. I am a fighter. Hochul's 12-minute address focused mostly on voting rights and abortion. 
she almost completely omitted a major concern for New Yorkers, violent crime. Hochul has declared herself the underdog in the race. Her Republican challenger Lee Zeldin has been gaining in recent polls leading up to the election. His main focus has been on crime. Zeldin says he believes a crime emergency should be declared in the state and is willing to work with Democrats to solve the problem. I want to be able to write a story in 2023 of how well a Governor Zeldin is working with a Mayor Adams to save the city. New York has over twice as many registered Democrats than Republicans. It's been two decades since New Yorkers elected a Republican for governor. Jeremy Sandberg, NTD News. Arriving by helicopter, Representative Lee Zeldin made a pitch to voters in a rural town near Albany. He addressed the large crowd alongside Congresswoman Elise Stefanik and candidate for Lieutenant Governor Allison Esposito. NTD's Daniel Monahan has more. The silent majority is awake. And we are coming for our state back. Former NYPD Deputy Inspector Allison Esposito is running for Lieutenant Governor in New York. She emphasized the importance of the November 8th election, saying that freedom, safety, education, and self-determination are on the ballot. This is not a red wave, ladies and gentlemen. This is a common sense wave. This is a red, white, and blue wave. This is Republicans, Democrats, independents, and people who have never voted before standing up and saying enough. Meanwhile, a recent case has caused public outcry. A man named Adam Benefield was arrested for a vicious beating of his wife Kira, which was caught on video. He was only charged with misdemeanors and was soon released due to New York's so-called bail reform, which includes no-cash bail laws. He is alleged to have then fatally shot his wife in front of their children within 24 hours of his release. Representative Elise Stefanik. And Kathy Hochul has embraced and is the leader of the defund the police Democrat Party, of the failed bail reform Democrat Party in New York. We back the blue. Stefanik then turned to gun rights, saying that New Yorkers have faced attacks on their Second Amendment rights from Hochul in Albany and from Democrat one party government in Washington. In June of this year, the Supreme Court overturned a New York law that required showing a special need to get a permit to carry a concealed handgun in public. Hochul criticized the court ruling in August while announcing new gun control legislation which has since been challenged in court. They decided to strip away the rights of a governor to protect her citizens from gun violence. Representative Lee Zeldin then took the stage. He discussed high taxes, safety, and cost of living problems when mentioning that New York leads the country in out-migration. He then brought up his campaign Secure Our Streets plan. We all have a plan, but what we lack right now is a governor with a backbone to do the right thing, to back our men and women in law enforcement, to make sure that we're firing those rogue district attorneys who refuse to enforce the law. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. A top lobbyist for Chinese telecom giant Huawei has donated to several Democratic candidates' midterm campaigns. This is a company that the federal government deemed as a national security threat and closely linked with the Chinese communist regime. Here's the story. Thomas Green is a senior counsel at multinational law firm Sidley Austin and a top lobbyist for Chinese telecom giant Huawei and he has donated more than $10,000 to eight Democratic campaigns in the past month. This is according to data from Open Secrets, a nonprofit group that tracks political spending. The money went primarily to Democrats facing competitive races in battleground states. The Huawei lobbyists donated $2,000 each to Senator Mark Kelly of Arizona and Senator Raphael Warnock of Georgia. $1,500 to Ohio Senate candidate Tim Ryan, another $1,500 to Pennsylvania Senate candidate John Fetterman, $1,000 to Sherry Beasley, who's running for the U.S. Senate in North Carolina, $1,000 to Mandela Barnes, who's running for the U.S. Senate in Wisconsin, another $1,000 to Senator Catherine Cortez Masto of Nevada, and $500 to Maryland congressional candidate Glenn Ivey. Green has helped to lead Huawei's lobbying team since 2019 when the company hired his law firm to lobby for its interests. The Trump administration had designated the company a foreign security threat and the Biden administration has also launched its own investigation into Huawei.
A Virginia county is ordered to use assistance nominated by Republicans in the upcoming election. Virginia law requires that a chief and assistant chief in each precinct come from different political parties. But Prince William County allegedly isn't following that requirement. Instead, they reportedly only have people who voted Democrat. Some of them are designated as Republican but weren't nominated by the GOP. The legal complaint cited eight times when the county GOP committee asked to replace such people. The judge ordered the county to use GOP-nominated people to fill the Republican requirement. Only a few days until the midterm elections take place, and many already know who they'll be voting for. We hear from Americans telling on which topics they are most concerned about. Here's a look. I think it's clear the Democrats fight for truth. I think, um, sadly, the Republican Party has gone the way of, of conspiracy theorists and of lies. It's difficult for me to find a Democrat that, that I can trust based on what I've said about limited government. Um, I'm very pro-life, uh, uh, very much about power being in the hands of individual people. Uh, and so Democrats, I, I just don't trust them to do that. 2022 has seen war in Ukraine, violence and crime in the United States, a new surge of illegal immigrants crossing the U.S.-Mexico border, and a landmark Supreme Court decision that rolled back the nationwide access to abortion. Ahead of next week's midterms that will determine control of Congress, one voter says the very fate of U.S. democracy is at stake. Our democracy is in jeopardy, and I think it's important that we get the right people in uh, so that we can maintain our freedoms uh, that we've uh, worked so hard to get. More people hold to conservative values than they don't realize it because they've been brainwashed into thinking that, well, I just have to vote Democrat because that's just what we do. And you don't even really understand what that party stands for or what they align themselves with. A recent poll has shown that Democrats generally think more optimistically about the current state of the U.S. than Republicans do. Two years ago, when Trump was still in office, it was the opposite. One expert previously told NTD how voters think about the state of the U.S. often depends on who's in the White House. President Biden is genuinely concerned about uh, this country and the people. Um, and I, I believe it's headed in the right direction. No, I don't think it's going in the right direction. I mean, every single item on the list that we're all concerned about has become a major problem. In New York, crime has been a major issue for many voters for some time now. Going into the midterm election, I think everyone should really look at the crime rate that's going on in New York. I think we're increasing at a rapid rate, and at this point, that's just something that we need to solve. Finances, money, and inflation affect people all over the U.S. Money is what matters the most. Abortion is, is it's an issue, but it's going to come up. The economy affects everybody. Abortion affects not everybody. So I, I think it, I think economy is going to weigh more heavily on voters' minds. And ultimately, all these things might depend on how people vote. And voting in the smaller elections is so important. Um, it's not just for the president. It's for all these other smaller governments that are still making decisions um, that affect people's daily lives. Over 33 million people have voted early so far in this year's midterms. Turning to Illinois, there's a lot of confusion surrounding a proposed amendment to the state's constitution. If approved, it would help workers keep their union memberships and benefits if they are employed by state or local governments. But it's unclear if the amendment will ultimately cede power from residents who elect officials to make laws and hand it over to the unions. Our next guest offers some perspective. Joining us now is Kathleen Murray, a Republican nominee for Illinois Senate District 21. Great to have you on the show today, Kathleen. Thank you for having me. Let's look at Illinois Amendment 1. There are concerns that if it's adopted, unions will be able to negotiate and make rules that can trump state law. Can you give us an example of what this would look like? Well, in basically, unions would have the power to create any law that falls within their union contracts and it would override state laws. So for example, in the case of the teacher unions, they could put things into their contract that would trump any state law. So for example, COVID, COVID uh, requiring COVID um, you know, mandates, mass mandates in the school, uh, uh, vaccine mandates, booster mandates, um, they, could they could prevent you know, and ban parents from 
you know, coming onto the coming onto the uh, into the classroom or on the school grounds. Um, it's it's very concerning that the unions would have this power. It's a complete power grab, um, and you know, it's they can negotiate anything into their contracts. You mentioned how this would affect education, and there are other concerns that, for example, if police unions negotiate that body camera footage can't be used for disciplinary action, but state law says it can, then there'd be a conflict there. Now, you have a background in business. Can you explain what this would mean for businesses and also taxes as a small business owner yourself? Yeah, I mean, it's giving it's giving unions virtually limitless powers and new ways to to uh, demand higher costs. So they can negotiate in their contracts things like um, raising salaries for the teachers or I, I, I specifically continue to reference teachers because I have an interest in in the uh, parents rights but unions would have the power to negotiate anything um, and which would cause an impact and uh, to raising taxes overall now the president of the Illinois AFL-CIO says it won't increase taxes arguing that it will increase the overall tax base making it less likely the state assembly will need to raise taxes what's your reaction to this it's giving union contract leaders unlimited power. They they can write anything into their contracts that's going to override any of the state laws. So they can they could put things into these contracts that will cause an effect. Because if the if it's if it's written in, there's there's it gives them ultimate ultimate protection under the state constitution. So that's incorrect. They it's absolutely incorrect. And um, you know it's being misrepresented as the work as the uh, workers' right amendment, and um, it, but it only benefits the public sector unions, which is seven percent, not the private sector, which is ninety-three percent. And um, you know, frankly, it's unconstitutional because it applies to all employees in Illinois, public and private. And um, you know, the the uh, private sector is governed by the National Labor's Relation Act and uh, which obviously preempts state law and would be a violation of the supremacy clause of the U.S. Constitution. So the amendment in and of itself is unconstitutional. And, um, you know, it, it's giving extreme power to union bosses to write anything in, in the contracts. Great to have your very detailed analysis. Kathleen Murray, Republican nominee for Illinois Senate. Pleasure speaking with you today. Thank you so much. Reuters reports that Elon Musk has directed the company to find $1 billion in annual infrastructure cost savings. Musk was seen getting out of a limo as he arrived at the 29th annual Barron Investment Conference. Twitter is currently losing about $3 million a day, according to an internal document reviewed by Reuters. The social media company did not immediately respond to a request for comment. Musk said today that Twitter saw a slump in revenue. He tweeted, Twitter has had a massive drop in revenue due to activist groups pressuring advertisers, even though nothing has changed with content moderation, and we did everything we could to appease the activists. New York City workers are asking the Supreme Court to block the city's COVID-19 vaccine mandate. Firefighters, police officers, and other government employees filed an emergency application to the court. They all tried to get a religious exemption from the vaccine mandate, but the city denied their requests. Some cited the fact that aborted human fetal cell lines were involved in the vaccine development. Their lawyer says it's unfair that unvaccinated adult entertainers and athletes were exempted from the mandate while his clients were fired. The lawyer said in a statement, quote, New York City firefighters, teachers, police officers, sanitation workers, and other public employees have lost their livelihoods and many are losing their homes after being fired over the vaccine mandate. Many pandemic era restrictions have been easing in recent months, but some remain. It's unclear if the Supreme Court will take the case. An unfortunate story here. A couple drove hours to a children's hospital in Seattle for their one-year-old's brain surgery, but now they aren't sure how they'll return home. Someone stole their car from the hospital's parking garage. The baby's son was 
in surgery for six hours this morning to treat infantile spasms, a rare form of epilepsy that he was diagnosed with at six weeks old. The hospital confirmed that the car, a 2017 Toyota Corolla, was reported stolen from its parking garage. In it, all the necessities the couple packed for the hospital stay. The hospital has stepped in to help with fresh clothes and toiletries and is working to get them a new car seat. And some good Samaritans, including the surgeon who performed the operation, have offered to drive the family home once their son is released. The good news is the little one's surgery was successful and is expected to cure his condition. A GoFundMe account for the family has brought in more than $26,000 so far. Meanwhile, take a look at your own car. Dodge and Chrysler are warning owners to stop driving their vehicles. That's after two recent deaths from defective Takata airbags. The notice involves four major models, including Dodge's Magnum Charger and Challenger models, as well as the Chrysler 300 from 2005 to 2010. If you own one of these cars, check your dealer to get the airbag fixed at no cost. The company says it has made 210 million attempts to reach owners by mail, email, and phone, but as more time passes, the greater the risk the airbag will break. In total, across the world, 32 people have died from exploding Takata airbags. Japan's Takata filed for bankruptcy in 2017 over the airbag issues. And NASA's Artemis I moon rocket may finally be ready to launch soon. Scientists recently moved the rocket back to the launch pad at NASA's Kennedy Space Center. It was a slow-moving journey for the 32-story tall rocket and its Orion capsule. Now it will remain at the launch pad for the next 10 days. The third liftoff attempt is planned for November 14th, just after midnight. The last two launch attempts on August 29th and September 3rd were cut short due to safety regulations and deteriorating weather conditions. Then Hurricane Ian forced the space agency to return the rocket to its hangar. There are two backup launch windows this time, November 16th and 19th. And coming up, the German Chancellor meets with Chinese leader Xi Jinping on a controversial visit to China, what he says about Taiwan and Russia after we return. And an update on the ex-U.S. military pilot arrested in Australia. His lawyer comments on the case. We'll have the details soon when we come back. Good to have you back. German Chancellor Olaf Scholz is in Beijing on a one-day high-stakes visit to China. In a meeting with China's outgoing premier, Li Keqiang, he restated Germany's position on Taiwan and human rights. It was a... Like the United States and many other countries, we pursue a one-China policy. At the same time, I have made it clear that any change in Taiwan's status quo must be peaceful or by mutual agreement. Human rights are universal. This goes for individual citizens and the right to freedom, just like for economic, social, and cultural rights. It applies especially to the protection of minorities' rights. All members of the United Nations have agreed to that. A reminder of this agreement and a call to implement these rights, for example, in Xinjiang province, is therefore not an interference in domestic affairs. Scholz was officially welcomed by Chinese leader Xi Jinping. He is the first Western leader to meet with Xi since he secured his third term. He is also the first group of seven leader to visit China since the COVID-19 pandemic. A recession is looming in Germany amid soaring energy costs and lower exports. During his one-day trip, Scholz was looking to boost economic cooperation with China. It came shortly after Berlin allowed a Chinese shipping company to buy a stake in Hamburg's port terminal. But Germany's over-reliance on Chinese business has come into question, especially in light of the Communist Party's growing threat to Taiwan and its tacit support for Russia over Ukraine. At a press conference, Scholz told reporters that he had urged Xi to, quote, use Beijing's influence on Russia. A former U.S. military pilot in Australia is likely facing extradition to the United States on undisclosed charges. The pilot, Daniel Edmund Duggan, was arrested by Australian federal police by U.S. request. He denies having breached any U.S. law, any Australian law, any international law. This is a position that he will defend vigorously. Mr. Duggan, at the moment, is not accused of anything under Australian law. 
Duggan recently arrived in Australia from China. Documents show he listed an address in Beijing. It's the same address as a Chinese businessman who is in jail in the U.S. for conspiring to hack defense contractors' computers. Another source alleged Duggan went to Beijing to work with Stephen Su, who was also jailed in the United States. His case involved the Chinese military stealing U.S. military aircraft designs. The State Department is offering up to a $5 million reward for helping in a case involving U.S. sanctions of North Korea. Authorities say Singaporean national Kwek Ki-sung engaged in a scheme to transport fuel to North Korea, a country that is under both U.S. and U.N. sanctions. Tseng allegedly took part in the direct delivery of petroleum products to North Korea. They say he even used one of his oil tankers for ship-to-ship transfers of the fuel to the country. Sanctions prohibit such actions if they benefit the isolated nation. The State Department says Tseng tried to hide the identities and actions of those involved by using shell companies to conduct financial transactions. U.S. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin welcomed South Korean Minister of Defense Jung Suk Lee to the Pentagon after North Korea fired multiple missiles into the sea. The United States remains fully committed to the defense of the ROK. And our extended deterrence commitment is firm. And it includes a full range of our nuclear, conventional, and missile defense capabilities. North Korea's missiles show included a possible failed intercontinental ballistic missile launch. This prompted the United States and South Korea to extend air drills that have angered Pyongyang. North Korea launched more than two dozen missiles over the last two days in response to the U.S. and South Korean military exercises that began Monday. The launches have sent South Koreans scrambling for shelter and further strained a country already mourning the loss of over 150 people at the Halloween crowd crush. The United States occasionally flies nuclear-capable bombers near but not over North Korea. It's a show of force after the country carries out provocative actions like a nuclear test. In a joint statement, the two defense ministers agreed to seek new measures to demonstrate the alliance's determination following repeated North Korean provocations. North Korea's latest launch of its most powerful intercontinental ballistic missile failed Thursday morning. According to a South Korean government source, the ICBM failed during the separation of its second-stage rocket and fell into the Sea of Japan. South Korean officials suspect it was a Hwasong-17, North Korea's most advanced ICBM, which did have a successful test in March. Theoretically, the missile could put the U.S. mainland in range of a North Korean nuclear warhead, but there are many unknowns about its true capability. The launch came against the backdrop of joint military exercises between U.S. forces and South Korea called Vigilant Storm. And in South Korea, grief mixes with anger as families bury the victims of last week's stampede. One dad recounts what happened that night. This was the last time Jung Hae Moon heard his daughter's voice. Dad, I'm going out, Juhi says on the phone, turning down an invitation to dinner. Out to celebrate Halloween in Seoul's Itaewon district, where she was killed in a stampede hours later. As news of the disaster unfolded, Hae Moon dashed to the district's narrow streets. He filmed this, the chaos he met, the distraught young people in costume the ambulances collecting the victims. He found Juhi the next day in a morgue, lifeless, swollen and bruised. Most of the 156 dead were in their teens or 20s, nearly two-thirds of them female. (laughs) On Thursday, Juhi's ashes were buried in this peaceful family plot outside Seoul. The family planted a tree and laid bouquets of flowers. They brought along Juhi's pet poodle for a ceremony of prayers and tears. Rest well. Mum and Dad will come and see you until we die. Thank you. (laughs) The cafe Juhi ran is closed. The sign reads, in mourning. I can't let her go, says her mother, Lee Hyo Suk. The 30-year-old loved animals and drinking wine. I came here thinking of her favourite flower. Did she like it because she herself was delightful? The space she leaves is too big. The gap she left in the family is too much. The emptiness. Their anguish is shared by all the bereaved families as the traditional three-day wake comes to an end. 
some parents didn't know their kids were out in Itaewon. Some wonder why they were celebrating Halloween, a foreign concept for older Koreans. But like Hyosuk, their biggest question is how there could be so little crowd control. It is heartbreaking. The police received calls from 6 p.m., but they did not respond well. I am beyond angry. It is outrageous because in any emergency, the country should protect its people and keep them safe. South Korea as a whole is struggling to comprehend the loss of so many young lives on what should have been an evening of fun. The area where the tragedy happened is known for its hills and narrow alleys. It's estimated that there were roughly 100,000 people there on Saturday. Authorities say there were 137 police officers. A special police team is investigating the police response and how so many people died. The festivities did not have a central organizer, which means government authorities were not required to establish or enforce safety protocols. The disaster is the country's deadliest since a 2014 ferry sinking that killed 304 people, mainly high school students. And related to the ferry sinking, South Korean national Keith Yu will soon stand trial for embezzlement. He asked the U.S. Supreme Court to block his extradition, but an associate justice denied his request. Lower courts have ruled against Yu, whose family has ties to the ferry company. Investigators said the ferry was overloaded, structurally unsound, and traveling too quickly. South Korean prosecutors have alleged Yu used his family's leverage to defraud various companies. The fact that the justice did not refer the matter to the full court suggests that she thought Yu's request had no chance. And if you have any news tips or feedback for the show, don't hesitate to email us at news.today at ntd.com. And still to come, Russia and Turkey agree to send Russian grain for free. It will go to developing countries in Africa. And four rockets targeting Israel fired from the Gaza Strip. Strong countermeasures from the Israeli military. More shortly here on NTD News Today. Russia will be sending its grain to developing countries in Africa for free. This would come as part of the grain export deal between Russia and Ukraine. Turkish President Tayyip Erdogan said today that he made an agreement with Russian President Vladimir Putin. They agreed that grains sent under the Black Sea export deal should go to developing countries in Africa. Erdogan made the comment in a speech in Istanbul after Russia on Wednesday resumed its participation in the deal. Turkey and the United Nations helped broker the export deal in July. It was agreed to by Russia and Ukraine. The goal was to ease the world hunger crisis caused in part by the war in Ukraine, which is a major grain producer. The British ambassador to Russia was summoned to the foreign ministry in Moscow on Thursday. Russia claims British Navy personnel were involved in a Ukrainian drone attack on the country's Black Sea fleet in Crimea over the weekend. The Russian foreign ministry said that it had delivered a protest to the ambassador. In a statement, it said the UK's actions threatened to escalate the situation and could lead to unpredictable and dangerous consequences. Russia's defense ministry earlier said that British Navy personnel blew up the Nord Stream gas pipelines in September. The UK's Downing Street dismissed the Kremlin's claims and described them as distractions and part of the Russian playbook. Russia has been severely hit by sanctions following its invasion of Ukraine, leaving Russians with soaring costs of living. Now food-sharing programs are helping charities to donate food. NTD's Andrew Thomas has the details. Several large retailers launched food-sharing programs in Russia this year. According to the non-commercial organization Food Sharing, about 17 to 18 million tons of food is thrown away in Russia every year. The main misconception is that everything that is thrown away is food that is no longer eatable. In fact, it is. The main problem is that out of the 17 million tons of food thrown away, most of it was still eatable at the time it was thrown away. And we are just saving such eatable food. Food sharing volunteers work to ensure that products suitable for consumption don't end up in the trash. They pick them up daily and distribute them to those in need. Most often, these are vegetables and fruit. They are removed according to some external indicators. Often stores are quite demanding and buyers are too. 
and because of this, these products are removed due to some minor flaws. The side of a tomato sagged a little, or some kind of speck appeared. While this does not affect the taste and consumer qualities of the product in any way, the organization works with both small and medium businesses. In August, the supermarket chain X5 Group launched its pilot food sharing project. At the moment, it only includes bread. More categories might be added later. Now, charity is even more expensive than recycling, and this is such a serious issue for the expansion of the pilot. For several years now, a bill to remove a tax barrier on commodity charities has been under consideration by state bodies. We really hope that it will be adopted after all, and this would greatly help us scale this project. Five to seven volunteers are assigned to each supermarket. There are about three thousand volunteers in the database of the food sharing charity. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. Over in Israel, the country's military says it has targeted a site of the Hamas terrorist group in the Gaza Strip. This comes after four rockets were launched at Israel. The Israel Defense Forces said four rockets were fired from Gaza on Thursday evening. Israel's Iron Dome air defense system intercepted one of them, and the rest seemed to have failed and exploded within the Gaza Strip. Air sirens sounded in Israeli towns near the Gaza border around 9 p.m. on Thursday. Authorities reported no injuries. In response to the rocket attack, the Israeli military launched an airstrike in Gaza. It targeted an underground site that Hamas uses to develop and produce rockets. The Israeli forces said, quote, We hold Hamas responsible for all terrorist activity emanating from Gaza. Palestinian officials reported no injuries. And just ahead, a 12-year-old Egyptian boy trips over a stone 100 years ago. The misstep results in one of the most important historical discoveries of the 20th century. And hundreds of the best craftsmen from France gathered at the Louvre in Paris to share their work at an international heritage fair. Get the story in just a minute when we return. Welcome back. 100 years ago, on November 4, 1922, an Egyptian boy tripped over a stone while getting water for a team of archaeologists. This misstep led to a discovery that has gripped the world ever since. NTD's Andrew Thomas has the details. Clumsiness ended up revealing a historical treasure, the tomb of Tutankhamun. The boy king ruled during the 18th dynasty in ancient Egypt. He was only nine years old when he ascended the throne and died less than 10 years later. Archaeologists worldwide have said his short reign brought back stability to a land that was in turmoil. As ever, when a young 19-year-old dies, as was the case with Tutankhamun, there are going to be lots of ideas and questions as to how he died, what brought about his premature death. and. There are several theories. Initially, there was one that someone had hit him on the head. That proved to be medically incorrect. He was buried in the Valley of the Kings, and his tomb was sealed off. The intention was that no human eye should ever see the gold, jewels, and works of art in the tiny chambers. The king's treasures remained hidden beneath the sands for thousands of years. Then, in 1922, they were discovered by British Egyptologists Howard Carter and George Herbert. Grandfather says to Howard Carter, what do you see? And Carter famously replies, just wonderful things. And he's looking back at this, in a way, perhaps theater set of the ancient civilization 3,100 years ago, everywhere the glint of gold. Tutankhamun's reign lasted barely nine years in the vast span of ancient Egyptian history. Dr. Salima Ikram is a professor of Egyptology at the American University in Cairo. She says Tutankhamun's successors tried to erase the king's record from history. But this valuable discovery has given the boy king an immortality his mourners never dreamed of. 2022 marks the 100th anniversary of the discovery of Tutankhamun's tomb and also really for Tutankhamun being given back to the world because he had become a very obscure pharaoh. So by celebrating him, we are giving his soul continued life Perhaps tripping over a rock will lead to more accidental discoveries. Andrew Thomas, NTD News.
And over in the United Arab Emirates, or UAE, archaeologists have discovered an ancient Christian monastery. It dates back as many as 1,400 years to before the spread of Islam. Archaeologists discovered the monastery on an island some 30 miles northeast of Dubai. This makes the second such monastery found in the UAE. The monastery could shed new light on the history of early Christianity along the shores of the Persian Gulf. The floor plan reveals a single-aisle chapel, a baptismal font, and an oven for baking bread or wafers. Carbon dating of the monastery's foundation date to around the time of Islam's prophet Muhammad lived. Scholars believe after that, Christians slowly converted to Islam in the region. Today, Christians remain a minority across the wider Middle East. Archaeologists have found other similar churches and monasteries in Bahrain, Iraq, Iran, Kuwait, and Saudi Arabia. In Paris, the International Heritage Fair at the Louvre brings together some of the best craftsmen from France and abroad. NTD's France correspondent David Vives takes us there. It's a place to encounter cultural heritage. Over 300 exhibitors from France and abroad showcased restored art pieces and their own creations at an annual event at the Louvre. The International Heritage Fair featured craftsmanship such as jewelry, stained glass installation, embroidery, stone cutting and many more. So this chandelier is made entirely of bronze and weighs a ton. It was made in our workshop in Vola Penil and it's Swarovski crystal. You can see the particularity of Swarovski crystal that it creates a prism of colors. Sometimes modern technology can enhance traditional skills, such as is the case for this heraldic engraver, who reproduces family coat of arms on jewels. I am making an engraving of a family seal, which is represented here. This is my motif, and I have to engrave it onto this little signet ring. In order to do this, I have to draw it because the basis of the engraving is the drawing. So I redraw with a pencil like this on it, and then I rectify my drawing with a compass. It includes niche crafts, where only a few of these craftsmen can be found in France, such as Dominique Flon, who restores century-old clocks. We follow the same process as the creators. My role is to restore pieces that were made between Louis XIV and the 19th century. There are no spare parts, so when things are damaged, we have to produce them made to measure. So basically, if we are doing our job correctly in 2222, it will still work and it will continue to show the time. It's extraordinary. Some craftsmen who work at the Versailles Palace were also present. Jean Sablé's family created a school of painting next to the palace. He has taught 500 students who come from across the world to learn how to paint landscapes, ornaments, wood imitations and perspectives. And some of them are now employed at the famous castle for restoration works. Sablé says being in contact with masterpieces such as at Versailles is his passion. It's really a job that allows you to discover magnificent places, to meet people, and also to explore the historical heritage, especially the one we have in France at all the castles. One of his tasks is to dive into old techniques and the painting's stories from the past. It's really essential to immerse oneself in the work of the old masters. It's very important that everything we bring back to the restoration can find its place, can be integrated with authenticity. Above all, one must never disregard the hand of the master. This is really essential. Our work must not be seen. And that's really an ethic that is very rigorous, that is very respectful of the techniques of the past. The fair, which was attended by around 20,000 visitors, will return next year on November 2nd. David Vives, NTD News, Paris. There's going to be something special in the sky next Tuesday. On November 8th, a total lunar eclipse will be visible in the sky nationwide. A lunar eclipse is when the path of our nearest neighbor in space enters the Earth's shadow during a full moon phase. That causes the light from the Earth's sunrises and sunsets to be cast on the moon, causing it to appear red temporarily. If you missed Tuesday's sky show, you'll have to wait until 2025 for the next one. 
Astronomers, professional and otherwise, can get more information about the total lunar eclipse on NASA's website. And still to come, meet what may be the smallest pony in the world. A miniature pony from Germany could be heading for the Guinness Book of Records. Get the story in just a minute. At barely 20 inches tall, it certainly keeps its owner on her toes. A little pony in Germany could be heading to the Guinness Book of Records for being the smallest in the world. Not to mention, it's really cute. Here's NTD's Cost MS. On a small farm in the North Rhine-Westphalia area of Germany, Carola Weidemann keeps horses. She is particularly fond of her miniature Shetland pony Pumuckl. At barely 50 centimeters or about 20 inches in height and a mere 80 pounds in weight, it is likely the smallest pony in the world. I've had Pumuckl for around two and a half years. When I got him, he was around 46 or 47 centimeters tall, so he's not grown much since. He is a little dwarf. Just like ordinary people can give birth to children with dwarfism, so can horses. It's what happens in nature. Some people have dogs or cats, but rarely would one find a pony in the kitchen. Yet Pumukul happily feasts in the house. He's allowed to come in for breakfast, a privilege not given to the other ponies. But I make an exception for Pumukul. Then we have breakfast together and off we go. Pumukul accompanies Carola for equine therapy. Together, they visit daycare centers and old people's homes to provide comfort. Pumukul is such a lovable and kind creature. You just can't help yourself. You just want to cuddle him and stroke him, just genuinely be affectionate with him. He's a sweetheart, like a plushy toy, and he's just such an amazing friend. Carola won't know until next year whether Pumukul really is the smallest pony in the world as the Guinness Book of Records only accepts miniature ponies from the age of four. That means I have to wait for a little longer. In the meantime, I hope this little one doesn't grow much more so that we'll still have a chance at getting into the Guinness Book of Records. That would be awesome with this little guy. The current record for smallest pony is from Poland and stands at just over 56 centimeters. Kost MNS, NTD News. The smartphone game Candy Crush is celebrating its 10th anniversary, and the team has done it in a spectacular way with a drone show. The drone show was beautiful. Um, all the activities was beautiful. I even won a prize. I never won anything. That's a big deal. Well, I love the drone show. They said it was an unforgettable drone show, and they were correct. I loved it so much. Even though it was so far away, it was just so like super cool to see. Hundreds of drones with flashing lights decorated the night sky of New York. They were lined up in different shapes, a formation reading 10 years of fun, a blinking giant heart, or a game character holding a lollipop. The drones were sent into the sky from New Jersey, and Lower Manhattan made for a good viewing spot. This tech-filled show is both a celebration of the game and a great way to promote it. Viewers marveled at the performance of what they call a new innovation in advertising. Time waits for no one, and that includes our skin as the years roll by. Unwelcome changes appear, and the fountain of youth is elusive. Is help available? Here's Gina Marie with Strong Mind and Body. As we age, strange things happen to our skin. Fear not, there is the world of superfoods. These can help to alleviate the worst damage from sun exposure, environmental damage, smoking, or diet. And the winners are, in no particular order, goji berries. Goji berries contain anti-aging and longevity properties. They are filled with healthy fats, fiber, iron, vitamin C, and other micronutrients. Watercress. Watercress offers anti-carcinogenic, cardioprotective, and anti-aging effects. Chia seeds. Chia seeds contain more calcium than milk, more iron than spinach, niacin, and plenty of omega-3 fatty acids. Turmeric. Turmeric assists with slowing neurodegenerative disorders and resists inflammation or oxidative stress. Wild salmon. DHA is an omega-3 fat that's found in wild salmon. It prevents age-related loss of muscle mass and skin barrier function. Blueberries. 
you can prevent cell damage using anthocyanins. These are those age-defying antioxidants. They help your skin repair from oxidative stress. Olive oil. Extra virgin olive oil with polyphenol protects DNA and slows aging due to increasing collagen production. Ginseng. A Korean study into black fermented ginseng is proving helpful for wrinkle reversal and anti-photo damage. Beets. Their color comes from betalanes, which keeps blood vessels healthy and promotes longevity. Then there's nuts. Mixed nuts are anti-aging heroes with plentiful vitamin E, minerals and micronutrients. If you want dewy, radiant skin, consume papaya. The papain helps to exfoliate, hydrate and repair skin. Broccoli contains vitamin C for collagen production. It also slows DNA damage. Maca root counters hormonal imbalance. Flax seeds are rich in alpha-linolenic acid to prevent heart disease and cancer. Pomegranates preserve collagen, and Corella green algae is great for detoxing. These foods not only repair your skin, but they're also beneficial in keeping diseases at bay. Fall in the United States of America can seem like an obsession to some, and many regard it as their favorite time of year. Pumpkin spice this, cozy flannel that, but for many, the drop in temperature is a welcome relief, if nothing else. Across the U.S., it's a time of change in nature. Step outside and you'll see red, orange, and yellow leaves breaking away from their branches. It's a sight loved by many, and it doesn't last long. Now, what most consider less enjoyable is having to clean up all the leaves once they've landed on their lawns. Another wonder of nature, Niagara Falls can take your breath away, and now it's possible to see it from a new vantage point. Until recently, a huge tunnel running under the majestic Niagara Falls was off-limits to visitors, lying dormant 180 feet below the bedrock. Workers armed with only lanterns, pickaxes, and dynamite spent four years digging the tunnel, which discharged thousands of gallons of water at the base of Horseshoe Falls. But now, it's reborn as a secret passageway for the public, allowing visitors to venture through the bowels of the world's only fully intact hydroelectric plant of the era and out onto a waterside platform providing spectacular panoramic views of this incredible natural waterfall wonder of the world. Lighter mornings and darker evenings are on the way as daylight savings time comes to an end this weekend. At 2 a.m. Sunday, U.S. clocks will turn back one hour and revert to standard time, shifting sunrise and sunset an hour earlier and ushering in four-plus months of darker winter evenings. It comes as lawmakers debate whether the practice should be eliminated. The Senate approved the Bipartisan Sunshine Protection Act in March, which would make daylight savings time permanent, but the bill has stalled in the House. And that's all for today's program. We're really glad to have you with us. Please send us an email if you'd like to tell us something. Our address is news.today at ntd.com. I'm Kevin Hogan, NTD News, New York City.